Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. And here's the problem. There's no guidebook. Like, I wish I could sit here and tell you some hard and fast rules about how to manage or, or mitigate uh, some of these issues. But to be fair, nobody's done a great job of it. We do know a few things that people can be doing before kind of menopause hits with full force. Um, and the biggest one is to have a regular, consistent, decent sleep schedule. Hello, friends. Welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. Today's episode, we are talking all about sleep with a particular focus on perimenopause and what happens to our sleep during the menstrual cycle. So following my perimenopause masterclasses, if you haven't listened to those, please go back and listen to them. Alongside this conversation with Dr. Michael Bruce. Dr. Bruce is a PhD and a diplomat of the American Board of Sleep Medicine and a fellow of the American Academy for Sleep Medicine. One of 168 psychologists to pass the sleep medical specialty board without ever going to medical school. He's been on Oprah, Dr. Oz today, the Today Show um, bestselling author of several books, including The Power of When, The Sleep Doctor's Diet Plan, and Good Night. And I wanted to bring him on to do a deep dive on sleep and perimenopause because that was maybe one of the number one questions that we had when we polled you, our community, our Bettys, around what you wanted to know about perimenopause in terms of preparation and best practices. So as you might imagine, Dr. Bruce is an expert and wanted to get his thinking around some of the hormonal changes, the physiological changes, and some tricks and optimization strategies to help with that. So we talked about circadian rhythm changes, changing in chronotype, our hormones and how they change, how we might think about napping around the menstrual cycle and how our sleep drive and sleep pressure changes around the menstrual cycle, the effect of alcohol on our sleep quality, hydration, and of course, optimizing timing. Why, as we get older, we want to pee more overnight. So this was more of a male-focused question, but we uh, looped in men as well. So we talked about kind of menopause and menopause, if you will. We talked about air purifiers. We talked about perimenopausal years. Uh, we talked about nasal breathing versus mouth breathing. We talked about nasal dilators. Goodness gracious, the list goes on. This is a very dense conversation. Dr. Bruce talks very quickly. He's a walking encyclopedia, and I think you're really going to enjoy our conversation. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Michael Bruce, the sleep doctor. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness, helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. 
don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures, keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk. And my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apreski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. All right, let's dive in. Dr. Michael Bruce, I'm so happy to have you back on the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, last time, as I was saying to you just before we got started, I had so many points uh, in our conversation that I had wanted to explore with you and we ran out of time. So I wanted you back on the show. And so here we are. And I wanted to start off right out of the gate with perimenopausal women. So uh, all my, I mean, we have so many listeners uh, sure. that are in that perimenopausal and menopausal kind of drop zone, if you will. Right. And certainly uh, lots of changes in our sex hormones during that time. Uh, uh, also very highly dependent on sleep. So maybe uh, we'll start with what are some of the changes that you observe, let's say in a perimenopausal woman, so in her, call it 40s and 50s, in terms of her sleep, the changes physiologically that we see. Right. And then the second part of that is we're going to include men. Okay, so we're going to talk about men. So we have menopause in women and we kind of have menopause, right, with men. We have this sort right. of you know, andropause, if you will, where we see this oh. decline in testosterone naturally with age. So how that changes as well. So let's start with the women and then we'll, we'll loop in the guys as well. Okay. So when we, when we look at perimenopause, which is kind of just before menopause really like strikes with the vengeance, we do get some warning signs and they usually do come in the sleep department. Um, <laughs> so usually in women in their early forties, um, and this is usually not necessarily uh, when they're having children, but usually they've probably had kids at this point in time, or they're at least considering um, doing that. Lots and lots of hormonal changes are going on. To be clear, nobody's ever died from menopausal changes to their sleep. So the good news here is you will survive. I can assure you, it doesn't feel like it, but you will you will make it through. But the, the biggest thing that we have a tendency to see is really twofold. One is the temperature dysregulation. So uh, as my wife likes to call it her own private summer every night at about two <laughs> o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, and then um, uh, also circadian rhythm changes. Um, and so uh, actually these core body temperature changes actually have a tendency to shift uh, women into a different direction. So some women who are early birds, maybe more in the middle, some people who are night owls may turn early. So there's a whole host of different things. And here's the problem. There's no guidebook. Like, I wish I could sit here and tell you some hard and fast rules about how to manage or, or mitigate uh, some of these issues. But to be fair, nobody's done a great job of it. We do know a few things that people can be doing before kind of menopause hits with full force. Um, and the biggest one is to have a regular, consistent, decent sleep schedule. Now, what? how do we break that down and what does that mean? So step number one for that is you wake up at the same time, seven days a week. Now, you notice I didn't say go to bed. Most people would have said, hey, there's a going to bed time here. I disagree with that, okay? Like there's a lot of variability in the going to bed time. And I don't think I have a big problem with it. But the entire program, all of sleep is anchored on when you wake up, right? So when your eyes open up and uh, light hits your eyeball, you have a specific cell in your eye called a melanopsin cell, which sends a signal to your brain to turn off the melatonin faucet in your head, right? So when all of that kind of stuff occurs, that's great. Um, but believe it or not, the timing of when you wake up 
affects when you're going to get sleepy at night. So I told you about that whole eyeball sunlight deal, but there's a second thing that goes on that a lot of people don't know about. And that's where a timer gets set inside your brain for about 14 hours later. Now I wanna be clear, this is a timer, not a clock, okay? And I'm gonna explain the differences and why it makes so much sense here. So what's interesting about this is, let's say that you were going along, waking up at 6 a.m., we're just gonna make the math easy on us, okay? 6 a.m., 6 a.m., 6 a.m. from Monday to Friday. Well. 14 hours later is 8 p.m., which is when melatonin would start. It takes about 90 minutes for it to kick into gear. So around 9.30, 10 o'clock, you're going to start feeling sleepy. Sounds like a great average week. Now, Saturday morning, you said, you know what? I'm done. I'm sleeping in until 8. Okay, so you took a two-hour sleep in, right? Your brain doesn't tell time. It's a timer. So if you, if you stopped at 8, if you woke up at 8 now instead of 6, your melatonin doesn't kick off at eight that night. It kicks off at 10, takes another hour and a half for it to get there. So you don't get sleepy until 1130. So the so whenever you wake up has a direct effect on when you get sleepy at night. And that's the big problem for a lot of women, especially as we're approaching in this perimenopausal state, because hormones are all over the place. And so what ends up happening with a lot of hormones is sometimes there's cortisol elevation in the evening time, right? Because of anxiety or stress or other things that are going on. Sometimes there's dopamine because you're uh, doing something that you enjoy, things like that. But there's all kinds of hormone dysregulation that's occurring. Therefore, if you can keep your sleep hormone, arguably the biggest one is melatonin, in a very regularized format, your body knows what to do. Okay. And this is one of the key factors that lots of people don't think about. They say, oh, well, if I get good sleep for a week, I should be fine. No, get good sleep forever. Okay. <laughs> like that's the goal here. And it's not hard to do. What do I mean by good sleep? Wake up at the same time, seven days a week. That, that's the major, major factor here. Okay. Um, se second major, major factor is how do you wake up and how do you start your day, right? And so I believe in something that I call the three 15s. So I, I ask people to swing their legs over to the edge of the bed and take 15 deep breaths. This sort of brings them present, allows them to kind of know where they are. Then I have them do 15 ounces of water. Uh, most people don't know it, but sleep in and of itself is a dehydrative event. You lose almost a full liter of water. Um, just from the humidity in your breath, not even the sweat and oils that come from your skin, but just the humidity in your breath. And then I have people go over to the window and get 15 minutes of sunshine. So that way we can, you know, fix that whole melatonin thing early time in the morning. So when I get women just doing those things before menopause hits, menopause is much, much easier because again, their body knows what to do. It's in a ritual, it's in a regimen and it works really, really well. Now, somebody might turn to me and say, well, Michael, what about kids or what about job or what about exercise or what about all these other things that I, I wanna do in the morning? I'm just asking you for 15 or 20 minutes. I'm asking you to get up at the same time every day and I'm asking for about 15 minutes of your time. That's it. And during that period of time, you're going to be doing things that are positive and good for yourself, like breathing, drinking water and getting sunlight. Right. If you if literally if your entire audience just did that, they'd be in awesome, awesome shape. And by the way, that's not just for women. That's for men as well. Um, so we've seen the data is very consistent in men and women for these particular recommendations. Absolutely. We, we have a tendency to see that men do better. Also, when you have a bad night, which by the way, everybody has, okay? Like I'm the sleep doctor and I don't always get great sleep. All right. So like, like if this happens to everyone, your body snaps back faster and stronger, the more consistent your sleep was. So as an example, if you're going to bed, you know, normally at 10 and you wake up at six and you wake up at seven, you wake up at six, you wake up at eight, Here's what ends up happening is when you do have a bad night where you don't fall asleep until two or three o'clock in the morning, you are less likely to really be hurting the next day if you have a level of consistency. Because what's happened is, is you've kind of built up a little bit of a backstop <laughs> for sleep, right? Because your body knows what to do and when to do it, when to produce hormones, do all of those things. So it just kind of keeps going. 
The only time a problem really happens is if you have two, three, four, five days in a row of not being able to fall asleep before three o'clock in the morning. Then obviously your body's going to take its toll. But you can actually, if you keep these, this level of consistency in these four things I ask you to do, you can actually probably make it through two or three nights of really horrific sleep and your body will snap back and get back into that regular schedule. Well, I think that that's so great. First, thank you for uh, giving us all permission to have bad sleep because I think yep. sometimes we'll talk about and we'll talk about trackers and things because I've I yeah. found often when I'm looking at my aura it and we'll talk about the menstrual cycle in a moment but it often dings me on my readiness twice a month right it's like at ovulation and right before <laughs> bleed week and I'm like no but this happens every month for me like it's you know it's part of mm-hmm. being a female um, yep. so thank you for that permission and I I actually really like the waking up at the same time that's such a great anchor because I find that it's much easier to go to bed later and later and later. Like that time can just creep up versus going to bed earlier and earlier and earlier. I think it's much easier to go to bed later. And then of course, then the knock-on effect of that is that you can't wake up at the same time. Let's talk a little bit about the menstrual cycle in terms Mm -hmm. of sleep drive and sleep pressure. I was talking to you right before we started and I said, you know, right around my period. So day one or day two, I really want to sleep longer and I don't find that it changes. So I want to, if I can, if I get it on the weekend, which I often get it like Friday or Saturday, let's say, uh, I can sleep in a little bit more without that change that you just described where the, you know, that 14 hour timer where I want to go to bed a little bit later, I still want to go to bed around Mm -hmm. the same time. Can you walk us through if there's, and hopefully it's not just me, (laughs) that's that's noticing that my sleep changes around my cycle. Can Mm -hmm. you maybe outline how sleep drive, sleep pressure, length Mm -hmm. and quality of sleep might, uh, might change over the course of the menstrual cycle? So I'm glad you brought this up. To be very honest with you, you're one of the first people to ever actually ask me this question. Uh, I've been doing podcasts for 10 years and very few people ever seem to want to address this particular issue. So number one, uh, in my female patients, lots of them have two bedtimes. So they have the bedtime prior to their period, and then they have the bedtime during their period, and then uh, sometimes even a different one after their period. Okay. So what ends up happening is for the few days before and during their period, they're exhausted. Now I want to be clear. Some women are the opposite and I haven't really been able to figure out which ones are which I seem to have two camps. I have some women who need less sleep before their period and then more during and after. And then I have some that are the opposite. The only thing I've noticed about the differences um, is it it seems as though women who are in their twenties and thirties seem to be okay leading up to their period. And then once their period hits they they just need more rest and sleep. Whereas women who are in their forties and fifties, they don't seem to, they seem to need more rest before their period hits than rather than after their period. I got no data to support that. Just an, just an observation. And I wonder if that phenotype changes over the course of a woman's life. Like if you've been watching someone from 30 and then she's moving into her forties, if that changes. Yeah, it's got to. But you mentioned the aura ring, which I'm also a fan of as well. I wear one also. It tracks your menstrual cycle. And so what's great about it is women can actually start to track and look at menstrual cycle and sleep. And let's be clear, sleep drive changes. Why? Well, one reason is you're losing a lot of blood and your hormones are changing like crazy. Like at the end of the day, these are all situations for recovery right? That your body needs to recover more than it normally would need to when you're not in a situation where you're having your menstrual or you're having your period rather. So like it it makes intuitive sense just from the standpoint of recovery, right? And so once again, women should not feel um, upset. And I absolutely give everyone permission. Number one, it's okay to have a bad night of sleep. It's okay to have a couple of bad nights of sleep. This is common. Um, But number two, it's kind of supposed to happen right as your period starts and then right as your period is over. Now, again, some women tell me, Michael, I got so much energy after my period. I don't know what to do with myself. I can't sleep. I go to bed later. And then some women tell me within the two days before I get my period, they're like, I know I'm going to get it because I am exhausted (laughs) right now, you know, and I'm having a hard time keeping my head up at dinner type of thing. And so, yeah, you remember variability in the bedtime is definitely something that, that we like. 
what we what we want is consistency in the wake up time. And so for women who are getting into their menstrual cycle, go to bed earlier uh, on the week or so before, you know, the three or four days before and during your period. And then you can go to bed later on those days that it's not. I recommend experimenting around. Again, I wish I had a great hard and fast rule that I could say this age group does this and this age group does that. But what I can tell you observationally speaking now is there's definitely something going on there. Um, and I personally believe it has to do with recovery. And let's not forget, it's not like women don't have a million other things that they're trying to do with their time, right? I mean, aside from, you know, mommy duties, career duties, you know, partner, like there's a lot of stuff going on. And so what ends up happening is there's only so many resources in the body and they really become depleted as you're going through the menstrual cycle. So it would make intuitive sense once again, that you would need more sleep. Yeah. And I think uh, I love what you're saying in terms of recovery, because this is really just a function of load management, right? So can, exactly. <laughs> like, can, like, can we, as you were mentioning, you have the career, the parenting duties, the partner duties, all the things. Whatever it and, is. And then uh, on top of that, you know, you're creating a potential five-star hotel, I like right. to call it, right? For, for, a fertilized, um, for a fertilized egg. So there's a lot of metabolic and physiological <laughs> changes that are happening there. So this is where I have a tendency to institute the daily nap. Um, so oh, for good. a lot I'm of- glad we're talking about naps. I know yes. you wanted to talk about naps. I want to talk about naps, yeah. <laughs> so, so one of the tricks that I do for women who say to me, Michael, I don't have time, I can't sleep more or, or, or I can't go to bed earlier because of whatever you know, responsibilities I have. Then what I'm having them do is somewhere between one and three in the afternoon, I have them take a 20 to 25 minute nap. Um, and, and I'm very specific between one and three in the afternoon is a very particular time that's important. So what we see is, um, so I'm going to back up for a second. <laughs> so I'm going to explain the science. So as we're going to sleep, our core body temperature rises, rises, rises till about 1030. And then at that time it falls, that falling of the temperature is a signal to the brain to release melatonin. So that temperature decrease tells the brain, Hey, kick it into gear. Turns out there's a second temperature decrease. Guess what? It's somewhere between one and three in the afternoon. Now, this shouldn't come as a big surprise because there are entire countries that nap between one and three in the afternoon. It's called a siesta, right? And, and it makes sense because it's part of your biology. So why not lean on a natural sleep aid like a nap um, for women, um, if they're, if they're exhausted and we know it, particularly at that time, there's a secondary slight increase in core body temperature and then drop, which again, releases some melatonin. Also, let's not forget that during your menses, your core body temperature is out of whack altogether. So you may find there are even other times during the day where you might want to take a 10, 15 minute nap. The only thing I want to caution people about is you don't really want to take a nap that's longer than 25 minutes. And here's why. Steph, have you ever taken a nap and woke up and felt worse, not better? Yeah. Okay. It's usually around the night when it's been 90 minutes or longer. That's for me, that's like that is where I feel like I've woken up from a dream. I don't know where I am. I'm disoriented. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens is you get into a deeper stage of sleep. Right. And then it's hard as hell to wake people up out of it. But if you keep it under 25 minutes, usually what you end up with is a little bit of stage one and a bunch of stage two. And that's just enough to lower the sleep pressure, as we call it, or what we call sleep inertia. So that way people don't feel this super duper grogginess. If you go into a stage three, four sleep where you get real physical repair, newsflash, your body wants to stay there. Right. Especially during your period right? Because what is your body trying to do? It's trying to physically recover, right? right? So once again, if you can take these shorter 20, 25 minute naps and, and set an alarm on your phone, okay? Like I tell people all the time, oh, and that's another thing. If you're going to nap during the daytime, there's a few simple rules that I like everybody to do. Number one, pick the right time, right? Like I said, between one and three. Number two, don't go too long. Like I said, don't go over 20 minutes, but the big, the biggest factor is safety, Okay. Let somebody know where you're going to nap. And if you don't feel comfortable, have a napping partner. Now that's going to sound a little strange, right? Napping partner, like, what are you talking about, Michael? So like, as an example, I have one woman and she works in manufacturing. And so she goes out to her car and she takes a nap during the second half of lunch. And she has one of her girlfriends sit next to her and play on her phone, which is what she would be doing anyway during her lunch break. Um, but now they're together. So that way somebody doesn't come by in the car and it becomes an unsafe situation. 
right? Remember, you're the most vulnerable you can possibly be when you're asleep. So I want women to specifically know and understand you need to let somebody know where you are, when you're coming back and what you're going to do, right? It don't, there's nothing to be ashamed of. It's your break time. If you want to take a break, take a break but I just want you to be safe about it. Um, the other thing I have a lot of people do is bring an eye mask and some earplugs with them to work. Um, have a little sleep kit, right? Because let's be fair, unless you have a nap room, uh, you know, like they have in America Online, which I don't even know that they have that company anymore, um, or Huffington Post or some of the Google. It's I a think thing in them. Korea, I think. I've seen oh, napping. It? I've seen napping. Oh, yeah, you can pay like napping stations. Like you can go in these mm -hmm. little pods and you oh, pay yeah, slide for however. yourself right in. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, so cool. I wish it's that we could cool. adopt that in North America. I feel like there's this sort of cultural, heroic, so, I'll sleep when I'm dead kind of, yes. uh, you know. Hubris. There's a lot of that. Yeah. But believe it or not, they're in some major airports now, they have napping pods. Um, That's great. So it's yeah, kind of cool. Exactly. So like if you get caught in between flights or you've got a long layover or something like that, I'm, I'm sorry because I can't remember the name of the company, but it's cool. You rent space and time. and you have a little pod with a, you know, sheets and a pillow and the whole thing. And you can just crack out and they'll, they'll wake you up. You tell them when your flight is and where the gate is, and they'll wake you up in time to wake up, wash your face, you know, whatever you need to do and go. So I think we're starting to slowly start to see more of that in our society where people aren't getting dinged for a nap. But here's, what's interesting is I work with some companies when they started doing those napping rooms and nobody would do them. Because they all thought if their boss saw them napping, that they would get dinged. So what we had to do was get all of the, the management to go in and take naps regularly, which actually was really good for the management. <laughs> yes. um, yeah. And, um, and then, the, then the employees would be like, oh, well, if my boss is going to do it, then I don't feel so bad doing it. And that, that was one of the hurdles that we had to get through. So also educating your employer. Hey, boss, I got news for you. I'm, I'm very productive and I enjoy my job, but I'm exhausted right now. And it's during my break time. I'm going to go take a nap. Uh, I want you to know I'm not being lazy. I'm actually trying to be more productive and be able to do my job better for you when I get back from taking my nap. I don't know a whole lot of bosses out there who are going to be like, oh, don't do that. You know, don't, don't, don't be more productive for me. Don't please. be more productive. Yeah. And so that 25 minute cap, let's say, so uh -huh. we're doing it at the right time, one to three in the afternoon, 20 to 25 minutes, as you mentioned, making sure that you're safe. That is not going to negatively like affect drive. less. Yeah. That sleep, like that adenosine buildup that kind of happens. We're not going to, or will it slightly, but it's not going to make that much of a difference because of a woman yes. is. Yeah. Yes. So the good news is, is it makes a small difference, but not a huge difference. Right. So what I tell a lot of women is, look, only nap for the three days before your period. And then for the probably the first four to seven, you know, depending upon, again, your flow and all that and how Lying you're exhausted. Yeah, right. Yeah. But you may you may do better off only nappy for certain days of the month. Right. And so then, again, you don't necessarily have to nap every single day. Um, and um, and you'd be surprised how uh, accepted it is. Um, I've even, I had one group, they created a napping group um, and it was um, all the people who took their break together. They actually went into a room and they, and they had little yoga mats and the whole thing. And it was great. I used to, in university, I used to take naps after I had finished like a unit, like a big chapter, yeah. because I was like, <laughs> I need to remember this. So I'm just going to like tuck out for 15 Think minutes. It in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I used to make the joke, like if I sleep on my book, like, you know, there's some sort of, you know, osmosis is going to get into my brain. Yeah. But it did, I did really feel like. <laughs> I have news for you. I don't think that the words went into your brain, but we do know that during REM sleep, that's when we move information from our short-term memory to our long-term memory. So for students out there, um, an all-nighter is not a good idea ever. Um, you just, you won't retain the information. You'd be better off sleeping for three hours than sleeping for no hours. Yeah. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna 
Ariana. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. Let's, let's talk a little bit about exercise and eating and sleep. So we touched on a little bit of this last time, but yes. how can um, exercise or maybe the timing of exercise, how can we use that potentially as a way to manipulate core body temperature? Like, is there a time in the day where we need to just cut it off by, is there a best time or best practice that we can think about for exercise? So historically, we used to say, don't exercise before bed. It increases your core body temperature, makes it difficult to sleep. Believe it or not, there was a study that came out within the last six months that said that doesn't, that doesn't always ring true for everybody. So there are some people who are really good at doing exercise later in the evening. Now, one of the things I've noticed is, and you know, I'm the chronotype guy, right? I was going to say, is this a chronotype? Is this a chronotype uh, variable? So it's interesting. So for people who are lions or what I call early birds, right? That's that's my term for early birds or lions. We use exercise to help extend their day, right? So what ends up happening for a lot of my early birds, because they wake up at like five o'clock in the morning, you know, 5.30 in the morning. And they're say, they say to me, Michael, I have an event. I've got to be awake until 10 o'clock tonight. Like I'm not usually, I, I'm asleep by, you know, 8.30. What do I do? I actually have them work out later in the daytime and it actually gives them energy to make it throughout the evening time. So I may have them work out at five o'clock um, and then they'll, they're, they can easily stay up until 9.30 or 10, right? And so sometimes we use exercise to manipulate our sleep to allow us to stay up a little bit later. Um, and that again, works well for my early birds. As a general guideline, I like people to work out before noon. Um, the reason is it's really hard to stay motivated. Um, I don't know about you. I'm more of a night person, but if I don't work out in the morning, it's just not going to get done. Um, and, um, I found that happens with a lot of night owls like myself. Um, and a lot of people who are in the middle, what I call a bear. Um, again, if they don't do their exercise before noon or one o'clock, generally speaking, they're not going to get there. Now, I also want to be clear about something. Exercise does not necessarily mean run a marathon. Okay. Like you can, you can just walk, you can take your dog for a walk. You can park your car at the far end of the parking lot and do a couple of laps. Like, I don't think I really care, but when we look at what are the exercise benefits to sleep, the data would suggest it's cardio, it's 20 to 25 minutes, and it's not vigorous. So again, you don't need to go crazy in order to get a decent night's sleep. And exercise is easily the most natural way to improve sleep quality. So for my folks who exercise daily, I almost never get a sleep quality issue from them. Um, and, and I mean daily, like six to seven days a week. Again, you don't have to go crazy about it, but just get outside, get moving, uh, try to get hit the treadmill or the elliptical or the bike, whatever it is for you. Um, but I, again, I'm not saying people need to sit in the gym for an hour and a half doing cardio. That's not what I'm talking about at all here. Again, the data does not suggest that. It says a short, non-vigorous bout. So a moderate intensity bout of exercise is really all we need. Now, one thing that's interesting is alcohol seems to dampen all of that effect. So if you go for a run and then have a couple beers afterwards, <laughs> you're oh <God>. pretty much <laughs> screwing it up for yourself <laughs> from a sleep perspective. Um, alcohol has a big effect. Uh, it increases stage three, four sleep, but then it causes multiple awakenings throughout the evening time. Um, and so it's really not particularly helpful uh, to do something like that. So because a lot of people I know, they're like, do go for a run and then, or go play tennis. And then afterwards they go out for dinner and they have a couple of cocktails with dinner and they say, Oh, I can do that because I worked out. Honestly, it's probably better to not do cocktails as often as you probably do. Yeah. And anytime that I have alcohol, which tends to happen in the evening, like for most right. people, I'm hoping that that's, you know, I'm guessing time. you're not a day drinker. <laughs> not a day drinker. No. So it happens, but and even one drink messes my sleep. My aura is yeah. like, girl, what happened? You do. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, my deep sleep is, is messed up. My yes. HRV is all over the place. And I also feel, I also feel, and you know, I'm such a lightweight. So one drink is really going to, I'm going to be tipsy and like, I don't have any tolerance for alcohol. Um, but I, I also feel like I wake up, like I haven't 
actually slept. Like it's a, right. I know I've been asleep, but it doesn't mm-hmm. feel like I've slept. Yeah. So what you've done is you've anesthetized yourself. You didn't sleep. You anesthetized yourself, right? So when you think about it, when you go into surgery and they stick a needle in your arm and they slice you open and then they sew you back up and then they take the needle out of your arm, were you asleep? No, you were anesthetized. That's exactly what alcohol does. Now, it doesn't do it quite at the, at the same level, but you're not getting what one would consider to be good sleep, good quality sleep. You are going through the sleep stages, I will tell you that, but we really don't consider that to be, quote, good sleep. In fact, I would argue that alcoholic sleep is, well, first of all, many people don't know this, alcohol is the number one sleep aid in the world. More people drink themselves to bed than any other substance, more than any of the PMs, more than marijuana, more than anything, right? And it's really not the best idea. Now, I also want to be clear, one drink is not going to kill you. Now, in your case, since you're such a lightweight, it's probably not the best idea, right? But if you live in France and you have wine with your meal, (laughs) which sounds kind of awesome, right? Don't have three glasses, have one glass. Right. And and by the way, substitute a glass of water in for each glass of alcohol. So you can, number one, slow down the volume of alcohol, but number two, stay hydrated. Remember, alcohol is a diuretic and sleep in and of itself is a dehydrative event. So look at it like this. If you had two glasses of wine with dinner, you're, you're probably going to the bathroom, which means you're getting dehydrated. Then you sleep, let's say for six hours, it's not going to be great sleep because you're probably going to have to wake up to pee or wake up multiple times, right? And, and losing water left and right. When you wake up in the morning, you feel like crap. So what do you do? Grab a cup of coffee. What's coffee? Coffee's a diuretic too. You're basically a raisin by the time this thing is done, right? Because there's no more moisture left in your body. So, and and people have got to understand that hydration is one of the main factors that drives good sleep. So few people really understand that hydration turns out to be really, really important. And I'm not sitting here saying drink eight, eight glasses of water a day hydration. I'm talking about like knowing and understanding like what color is your urine, right? It should be as close to clear as possible because that lets you know that you're well hydrated. Also, people should not be, oh, I didn't drink my my water for the day. I'm going to chug, 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 you know, two hours before bed, you know, 30 ounces of water because I need to get my water. All that's going to do is make you pee all night long, right? So again, thinking through this, what I tell people all the time, and this is going to sound a little crazy, you start getting ready for bed from the minute you wake up, right? So when you wake up in the morning, if you if you do it right, and you get up at the same time, roughly every single day, you get yourself some sunshine, you get yourself some air, and you get yourself some water, you're already prepping your body for later on in the daytime. Now, let's say it's the middle of your period and you're exhausted. Okay, take a 20, 25 minute nap between one and three in the afternoon. Then uh, make sure you're staying hydrated. That's another big factor for women uh, during their menses is they can get dehydrated very easily. So again, be aware of that level of hydration and then, um, you know, have an evening routine to help you fall asleep at night. Now, again, remember, it doesn't always work. Like the thing I try to impress upon everybody about sleep, look, I've been treating sleep disorders for 23 years, is there's really two major categories for sleep, okay? There's discipline and then there's acceptance, right? So discipline are all the things that we know what to do, right? So wake up at the same time every day, stop caffeine by 2 p.m., stop alcohol three hours before bed, exercise daily, the things I was telling you to do in the morning time. We know all that stuff. That's the discipline side of things. But guess what? Sometimes it doesn't freaking work, okay? Like uh, my daughter, I use my daughter as an example all the time. Uh, Over the summer, my daughter's boyfriend broke up with her, okay? It was heartbreaking, okay? She didn't sleep well for days. Guess who else didn't sleep well for days? me, right? If my daughter's upset, then I don't sleep well. There's not a whole lot I can do about that. I did all the right stuff, but emotions can get in the way of that. That's okay. My head didn't pop off. I, I you know, I, I the, the, the world didn't come to an end because I wasn't sleeping particularly well, but I knew that my body and my brain, they were kind of someplace else when I was supposed to be sleeping. I was worried and concerned and thinking about her. So what did I do? I allowed myself to do that it's okay. right? I want everybody out there to know, like very few people have died from lack of sleep unless you fall asleep while you're driving a car. right? So at the end of this whole process, realize and understand that acceptance is a major part 
of your ability to sleep and sleep well. Because here's the thing, anxiety is what throws your sleep off, right? So here's what happens is you're lying in bed and you just get pissed, right? You look at the clock, you instantly do the mental math and you say, oh crap, it's one o'clock. I haven't fallen asleep. I'm getting up at 5.30, sleep, sleep, sleep. And you try to think your way to sleeping. I got news for you, Steph. In the history of time, in the history of time, nobody has ever thought their way to sleep. It's the opposite, right? You're activating cortisol. You're activating all of those neurons to think or to have anxiety when in fact, what we really want you to do is relax and calm down. And so that's why acceptance turns out to be such an important thing. And like I say it to myself, like it happened to me last night. I woke up, it was still dark out. I didn't look at the clock, but I could tell feels kind of like, I don't know, three o'clock in the morning. So I said to myself, okay, I'm not sure why I'm awake. I don't have to go to the bathroom. I'm just going to roll back over, close my eyes and relax and be okay with the fact. And if I don't fall back asleep, eh, worst case scenario is I don't fall back asleep. Guess what? I fell asleep in like seven minutes <laughs> because I wasn't putting pressure on myself to fall asleep. And that's really where a lot of this comes in is a lot of the should ofs and supposed tos don't really work when it comes to sleep. There are just times where you're not going to sleep very well and that's okay right? Now, does it have to happen every single month? Well, in some people it does, but again, we've been talking about strategies and, and ways to think about it so that number one, it's not as bad every single month. And number two, you're a little bit prepared for it. One of the things we haven't talked about is this, when we talk about temperature dysregulation is that there are some products out there that you can actually purchase that can help regulate your temperature. Obviously staying hydrated, sleeping on a consistent schedule, all of those things help with temperature regulation. But they now make these pads that you can put underneath the sheet of your bed that will warm or cool you depending upon what you want. Now, I want to talk about that idea as a concept. So if we know that, let's say, during your period, you don't get great sleep, let's set up your bedroom so that there's nothing else in there, <laughs> right, that's messing it up for you. So it's got to be dark. It's got to be cool. It's got to be quiet. Um, you've got to figure out what works for you. Um, I know a lot of people like to sleep with an animal in the bed. We have two uh, of our dogs in the bed with us every single night. I can assure you, my wife cannot sleep without the dogs in the bed. I mean, when we go on vacation, she turns to me and she's like, can we rent some dogs to put in the bed? Because wow. she like, needs the, she needs the, she likes it, right? Little fur babies. Yeah, that's right. So like, you know, again, understanding what works for you. And what makes sense for you is going to be important. And then just make sure it doesn't, you know, uh, uh, make the quality so bad. Like, to be clear, if the only way that you can fall asleep is by having a bottle of wine, that's not good. Like, we need to talk to a doctor about that. But as a general guideline, if you can figure out how to make your bedroom kind of a sleep sanctuary and know and understand sort of how your body is going to react, then at least you have a fighting chance. Yeah, Great. This is all very, very good pieces of advice. I, I wanted to come back to something that you mentioned, um, which was hydration and timing yes. of hydration. You said like, hey, we're not going to have 30 ounces of water, you know, an hour before bed. No. Um, and, uh, if, and, and if you do, you're probably going to be peeing overnight. One of the things that I hear, I hear it more from men uh, than I do women, but I know that it happened. It must happen to women. Maybe we're just not talking about it. Is this changing... Uh, need to, let's say, void overnight. So mm -hmm. I know with men, uh, it's not a question of like, you know, if, but when, when the yeah. prostate, let's say, is going to enlarge, and then we have mm -hmm. this kind of change in, uh, let's say, voiding patterns. Yep. Um, is there a way to um, think about timing of hydration as we age. And then maybe if you can walk us through some of the changes physiologically that happen mm -hmm. and, and as an explanation for why we're, let's say, wanting to urinate, like going to the bathroom overnight. Yep. One of the things I don't, one of the things, you know, the point, one of the points of this podcast is to explain the physiology so that mm -hmm. people don't misinterpret their experience when they get there. Got it. So yeah, what's happening there? So, so there's two big reasons why guys have a tendency to have to pee uh, over the cross of the evening. Uh, one is an enlarged prostate prostate. The second is, um, obstructive sleep apnea. Um, so there are a lot of people out there who are undiagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea. So if you've got a bed partner that snores or you snore and you find yourself waking up more than one time to go to the bathroom, 
you could definitely have sleep apnea because something called nocturia occurs during sleep apnea, which is going to the bathroom at night. Um, this is quite common for men, especially as men gain weight. Um, so as we gain weight, we also have a tendency to gain it in our necks. And inside of that sort of process, we end up crushing our windpipes, which actually can cause sleep apnea. So that's one of the big things that seems to happen for guys. That's visceral accumulation in and around of the fat. Yep. So, oh, okay. Okay. so it's, it's interesting, right? So when you look at a guy and he gains weight, where does he gain it? In his face and in his spare tire around his belly. Right. Where do women gain weight? Not in their face. It's usually in their rear ends, right? And so fat seems to distribute itself differently. So here's a crazy number. Um, if you have over a 17 and a half inch neck, you have an 84% chance of having sleep apnea. Wow. Say that one more time. 17 and a 17 half, and inch, a half neck. inch neck equals an 84% chance of having sleep apnea. That's like I wanted guarantee. to just stand outside the big and tall store and pass out my card for a while. You know yeah. what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, so as people get bigger, right, we definitely start to see sleep apnea creep in, which is one of the things that makes people have to urinate at night because number one, they're in a lighter stage of sleep because of the apnea, um, but also fluid intake. So I always tell uh, my patients, you need to stop food two hours before lights out and stop fluids one hour before lights out. Now, I want to be clear. If your doctor needs you to take medication or you have diabetes or something like that that requires you to be, you know, have fluid with you at all times, please have fluid with you at all times. As a general guideline, um, this is what I tell people to do. And it works really quite well. But the key factor here is drinking throughout the day. Um, a lot of people really don't think about it. And they'll like, as an example, I drink a full glass of water before each meal, before breakfast, before lunch, before dinner, I drink a full glass of water. Number one, it slows down the amount of food that I eat, which is probably not the worst idea in the universe, but it forces me to get some water in there. Cause you know, a lot of times we don't think about the fact that we're getting dehydrated. And, and especially if you're in an environment where you're not actively sweating, but you're just still losing water, you, you won't even realize it. And then you go to the bathroom and all of a sudden your pee is like dark yellow. And you're like, hold on, what's going on here? And by the way, most people don't even look at the color of their urine. They just go to the bathroom and get out of there. Look at your, I know this sounds crazy, but look at your urine right? You go to the bathroom a couple of times a day. This, this gives you an opportunity to make an assessment on your hydration. Believe it or not, this is going to be crazy. It sound crazy to you, but I was talking with somebody the other day in India, they have these color charts in the public restrooms that tells you if you're, you're uh, unbelievable, right? That's great. Isn't that awesome? That's great. Yeah. <laughs> So, so I believe that hydration is really a, a major factor here, here for guys, um, but also for women as well, right? And so also, by the way, some women tell me they are super dehydrated uh, during their period and then not dehydrated after their period. So again, yeah. looking at your water intake throughout this entire process is really going to be a smart way of, of doing things. So I think hydration really does play a role. If we look at the data, um, what we can tell you is, People can't sleep for long periods of time when they're dehydrated. The body just doesn't work particularly well. We use a decent amount of fluid just through sleep, right? Just for all of the bodily functions that are kind of occurring there. So, um, uh, you know, a lot of people think that they kind of put the car in park when they go to sleep. It, it, nothing could be further from the truth. I would say that you're probably either in neutral or in like first gear, um, you know, like the engine's still going, like all the fluids are being used, all the stuff is kind of happening here. So it's going to be important for you to kind of understand that. Um, also for women, sleep apnea has a tendency to occur later in life as well, specifically post-menopause. Um, and so the ratio normally it's, it's two guys for every one gal that has apnea pre-menopause, but post-menopause, it's a one-to-one -one ratio. Um, now, why is that? Well, we think it has to do with some of the hormonal changes, but also a lot of women gain weight post-menopause. And so again, we think that that adipose tissue that surrounds the neck, that's actually crushing the neck is actually one of the things that's causing this. Another thing, and this is going to sound even stranger, is big tongues. So it turns out as we get older, our tongue gets thicker because of all the stuff that kind of gets sucked into it. And so believe it or not, a lot of people's tongue is too big for their mouth. Now you might be wondering like, how the heck do you figure that out? If you stick your tongue out while you're in the mirror and you look and you see little scalloping or little ridges along your tongue, what that means is your tongue is pushing against the front part of your teeth because it doesn't have any room for it to do anything. 
when you're hanging out and, and just listening to somebody, your tongue should actually be basically touching the roof of your mouth. That's kind of where it should belong. But for a lot of people, it's pushed back a few millimeters, which means as soon as you lay back, boom, you get sleep apnea. So knowing and understanding some of those can be uh, super duper important as well. But the big factor that I always tell people is if you're thinking about it from a sleep disruption standpoint, go to bed, go to the bathroom before bed. That's the other thing is you want to avoid probably, I don't know, 20 minutes before your lights out if you can. Um, And again, ritualistically, just head on into the bathroom. You know, it's not that hard to do. I promise you when you get in there, uh, you know, turn on the faucet, it'll make you have to pee um, and you should be in pretty good shape. What is your opinion on mouth breathing and nasal breathing uh, Mm -hmm. as it relates to sleep quality? One of the things I can tell you just observationally, uh, when I'm on my back, if I don't tape my mouth, my Mm -hmm. jaw gets slack and it opens. And then if I haven't taped my mouth when I wake up, it feels like I've had a sock in my mouth. The whole, like right. everything is dry. I'm, you know, and I, I would assume that my quality of sleep is going to be affected there as well. What do you think about nasal versus mouth breathing? Yep. So at the end of the day, noses were meant for breathing and mouths were meant for eating. Okay. Like that's really how it should be. And so you're doing the right thing by basically breathing through your nose, but you shouldn't be so congested that you need to tape your mouth shut. So step number one, I always tell people is you need to decongest for better rest. So the first thing I would be looking at is I'd look up your nose and I'd want to know, okay, are there any allergens or particulates that are in your bedroom? So maybe adding an air purifier just for the room itself. And I want to be clear. I'm not saying you don't have a clean home, but look, particulates come in from all kinds of sources. Well, like dust and mold. Yeah. And, and, and also yeah. if you have pets and things of that yeah. nature, it's if you're going to put an air purifier in any room of the house, put it in the bedroom. Cause by the way, you spend more time and you breathe more in there. So that's one thing that can be super duper helpful. Um, so I, I tell people all the time, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about it from that perspective, then yes. Um, but also you got to be careful. You can't tape your mouth shut if you think you have sleep apnea. Okay. Because if you think you have sleep apnea, you tape your mouth shut, you're going to have a problem on your hands because what's going to happen is you're going to wake up and you'll, and then you're going to pull the tape off, which is going to rip some of the skin off of your lips and things of that nature. And um, also for guys with facial hair, that can be an issue as well. So while I'm not against mouth taping as a general guideline, what I always ask people who tell me, they say, oh, I mouth tape and it helps my sleep. I'm like, that's awesome. Work on your congestion right? Because the 94% of people sleep with their mouth closed as soon as they fall asleep. The only reason we don't sleep with our mouth closed is because our nose is stuffed up. And so our mouth has to fall open just to get oxygen, right? Mm -hmm. So looking at this first really will make, also, by the way, your nose has got hairs in it called cilia that actually grab some of those particulates and, and make sure that they don't get to your lungs. Whereas your mouth it's like unleaded gasoline going straight in the tank, okay? Like you really don't want to be breathing through your mouth as much as you are through your nose. I would say just personally, I know I have an issue with my nose. I have a deviated septum. It's mm-hmm. been, so I'm naturally congested that way. So I find that the, and I, I just use like a little postage stamp. Like it's not yep. on my, it's, I'm not duct taping my mouth. It's just like a yeah. little reminder when I'm on my back to keep my mouth um, close, but certainly looking into air purifiers because my son also does it as well. Like my son mm. and I, but there could How be an environment. He's 12. So if he sleeps with his mouth open, you want to get him checked. You yeah. want to find out what kind of allergies he's got. Um, and you want to also definitely check his room at 12 years old. He should not be sleeping with his mouth open at yeah. all. But he should yeah. definitely have um, a closed mouth for sure. Yeah, we have like, he's, I thought like sucked his thumb for a long time, has some deformation in the palate. So we're working with, yeah. Yeah. yeah, So let's talk about that. So a lot of people don't realize it, but thumb sucking actually changes the arch of your palate, right? So I had, my my son was a thumb sucker, but my daughter wasn't. But as they suck their thumb, they push on the roof of their mouth because it feels good for them to, to kind of stroke that upper area. But what they're doing is they're actually creating almost what we call a steeple right? It's this internal, internal growth plate that kind of starts to go up. And what it does is it makes the whole head more narrow. Our, our note where our noses kind of come out, we become more bird like, believe it or not. But what happens is, is when you push the upper palate into the sinus cavity, you don't have any room to breathe. Um, and so it makes it much more difficult. Um, so one of my favorite things that people can do is use an internal nasal dilator. So you've probably seen the external ones like the breathe right strips that go on the outside. 
my biggest problem with those is I have slightly oily skin. And so those things tend to migrate. Like I've had them cross my eyeball before, (laughs) you know, like I wake up, I'm like, what is going on? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's kind of a mess, but internal nasal dilators actually go inside the nostril. Uh, I use them when I drink whiskey. So like when my, yeah, so I like bourbon, I'm from the South. So, you know, I like bourbon. And so if I go out and I have a whiskey, my wife's like, Hey, put your nose thingy in, or you're sleeping on the couch because she knows I'm going to snore right. And, and, or breathe through my mouth when I've got that, because alcohol of course causes a level of vasodilation inside the nasal cavity, which opens up those tissues and makes it hard to breathe. So again, kind of thinking through all of this, What's the reason why your mouth breathing is my first concern, but I don't have a problem with it. But by the way, nobody should ever do a horizontal piece of tape. It should always be vertical. And also you should get the M3 micropore tape. So it's medical tape. You can get it at the drugstore in the, in the first aid aisle. But you don't, what you don't want to do is use masking tape or duct tape or electrical tape or, or scotch tape or just tape that you've got lying around your house. You will 100% for sure, this is very delicate skin. You will rip that skin right off and then you can have an infection. It's going to be an even bigger problem. So look, if you're going to do it, do it right. Small piece of tape, vertically placed, uh, literally directly underneath the nose towards the chin. Is there a sleeping position that is optimal? Mm-hmm. Um for sleep, like sleeping on our back, sleeping on our sides, stomach sleeping. What are your thoughts on that? So stomach sleeping is bad just as a general rule. Um, and I will be fully willing to admit here on your podcast that I am a stomach sleeper. It's the worst. Um, and it hurts my back, but I can't seem to stop. I've rotated to my side now and I've been able to do that successfully. By the way, if you're trying to change your sleep position, I have, I I have the method that I used for myself. Um, that worked really well. So if you go to one of those um, sporting goods stores, like the used sporting goods, you know, where like the, the play it again, whatever it's play called. Play it again sports, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember back in that, well, you're too young to remember this, but they used to have these things called ankle weights and wrist weights in like- Oh 80s. yeah, I remember those. I'm 45, right? yeah. Oh, are you? Wow, you look amazing. Um, <laughs> Thanks. So here's what I tell people to do is put ankle weights on and then get in the position that you want to stay in. Right. So if you want to be a back sleeper, put on ankle weights and lie on your back, because what happens is when you try to rotate, it's just enough of a it's harder. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. just enough for you to be like, oh, that's right. I'm supposed to be on my back and you fall back to sleep on your back. Right. Or if you're on your side, again, start on your side. Use those ankle weights as just a subtle reminder. You'd be surprised. But the best position to sleep in, I would say, is on your um, left side. Um, and I'm very specific and I'll tell you why. So um, what we know is about 73% of people sleep on their side, um, but it's better to sleep on the left than the right. And the way I remember it is right is wrong in this particular instance, okay? Is this the aorta? Is it the... Yes, I'll let, exactly. I'll let you say it. Sorry. Yeah. I'm thinking so, anatomically, so, why would you do that? Yeah. Well, yeah. so it's, ga- it's about gastric dumping, right? And so what ends up happening is everything, when you're on your left side, um, you've actually got a much better, uh, the sphincter opens a lot easier. You don't have as much reflux, things of that nature. Whereas when you're on your right side, everything's kind of crawling over and pushing down uh, specifically for gastroesophageal reflux. Also for pregnant women, we ask pregnant women to uh, sleep on their left side uh, because it's healthier for the baby. So just as a general guideline, but here's the thing. If you have any sort of weight to you and you're sleeping on your left side for more than about an hour, hour and a half, you get that pins and needly feeling, and then you got to rotate, right? And then you rotate to your left side. So, or to your right side rather. So you can move back and forth. The key factor, if you're going to be moving back and forth is you want a bed that doesn't have a lot of, um, movement to it because when you're moving, you don't want to wake up your bed partner or when your bed partner's moving, you don't want them to wake up you. So that's called motion transfer. So what you're, so if you're out there buying a bed, you want to have a bed that has low motion transfer. Now let's say you're, you've got a bed that you like, but every time your partner rolls around, it, it's very, very disruptive for you. You can go out and buy a topper, like a two and a half, three inch topper just for you that won't move nearly as much if you have it just on your side. Um, so that can be a way to kind of tighten that that sort of situation up for you. Great. And then just speaking of speaking of bed partners, um, mm-hmm. I've heard of the, I think it was Matt Walker who talked about this idea. I, I first heard it from him. I don't, I don't know if he came up with this term, but this idea mm-hmm. of a sleep divorce where you may sleep right. better without your partner. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you can come in for cuddles and, and intimacy, you know, 
prior to going to bed and then maybe in the morning. Um, do you think that that is a good strategy? Let's say you do have a snow, someone who's sleeping or you have a sure. mattress where you're, you know, that yeah. motion transfer where you're, you're feeling them move around at night. Is that, is that a good strategy for people not to get an actual divorce? <laughs> so, so to be really honest with you, I don't like the term sleep divorce because it's so negative. Um, so I, I haven't come up with a better term when Dr. Wendy Troxel. Um, has actually studied this uh, extensively. She's with the Rand Corporation. She just uh, wrote a wonderful sleep book called, I think it's called Under the Covers. Um, and it talks about couples sleep in particular. I would argue she's probably the best in the world at couples sleep. Hmm. Um, and one of the things that we talk, she talks about in her book, uh, and she and I have discussed at length, is yes, it's perfectly fine to sleep in separate bedrooms. I want to be clear. Number one, you don't have to go to bed at the same time as your bed partner. A lot of people think that if I don't go to bed, when my bed partner goes to bed, then that means something about our relationship. I want to be super clear about this. The timing of when you go to sleep means nothing about it. All it tells me is what your genetics look God, like. That's so true. That's right? so true. I, I go to a, a different time. We, we actually sleep in separate beds most mm -hmm. nights, but when we are together in the same bed, I'm in bed earlier than him. Yep. Just naturally. Yeah. I just want to go and do my oils, my hair, my thing. That's I want right. to do my thing do and then thing, get to bed. Yeah. Get in there, get to bed, right? So yeah. it doesn't mean it, but it doesn't mean anything about your relationship on any level. It's just you've got your time when you want to do your thing. They've got their time when they want to do their thing. And by the way, if you have opposing chronotypes, if you're early and he's late or she's late, guess yeah. what? They want to go to bed at a different time. Yeah. So there's nothing wrong, number one, with going to bed at a different time than your partner. And number two, there's certainly nothing wrong with sleeping in a different room. So if you snore um, and it wakes up your bed partner or your bed partner snores and wakes you up, number one, check them for sleep apnea. If they don't have sleep apnea, then absolutely put them into a different room. Now, here's what I have a tendency to do is I tell people, look, it's not like they have to be in there every night. So let's say Monday through Thursday, right? You sleep separately. And then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you sleep together. Number one, your intimacy goes up, not down. Um, I can assure you of that because guess what? You got good sleep all week. Nobody's you're in the mood. That. You're in the mood for it because you're right. happy. You well slept. Yeah. Yeah. Not, it, it's no longer not tonight. I have a headache. It's not tonight. I'm too freaking tired. Right. And so by the end of the week, you're in great shape because you've gotten three or four good nights of sleep. So you actually have a libido. You actually want to participate. So that's that's a good thing. Um, and or, um, again, you know that, hey, if I don't get the greatest night's sleep, <laughs> when, when Monday comes around, I'm back in the other room, I'll be I'll be able to sleep just fine. So again, this this is not a comment on the strength of your relationship. This is actually more a comment on you taking care of yourself and, and your partner taking care of themselves. I would argue that people who sleep separately because they need to and get better sleep are doing something more positive for their marriage, not less positive. But again, the word divorce is one of those words that just sound, you know, it's not a good word. Um, yeah. And so I'd rather, I'd rather, you know, maybe talk about um, uh, alternative environments. Um, <laughs> I do like that better. Sleep divorce is a tough word, but it, it you know, as you were saying, because it has all these negative connotations around it. But I, I read somewhere um, that just by just because of gender differences, sex differences, mm -hmm. that women actually need to sleep a little longer anyway. It's like anywhere yes. between fifteen to I think forty five minutes longer. That's correct. So Absolutely. if he's waking up, or, like you were saying, if the chronotypes are mismatched and he's the lion and she's the bear you know, he's getting up early, she's getting disrupted by for that half hour and she misses right. out that precious REM, right? She misses out that, that sleep right at the, you know, early morning. Exactly. But if she was in her own bed, in her own bedroom, yeah. she'd get all of that. Then yeah. she could walk in feeling, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And then who knows, maybe they're intimate in the morning, right? Maybe she walks in and hops in the shower or he walks in. I mean, who knows? Like there's all kinds of opportunity there. Um, to be able to do that in a healthy way. It's really just about like not getting caught up in the stigma, right? And not thinking like, oh, we're supposed to do this or that. And I feel like that's kind of been the theme for the podcast today has been like, there aren't a lot of should and shouldn'ts. Like clearly you shouldn't, you know, drink a bottle of wine before bed or drink a pot of coffee before bed. But, you know, other than that, most of this stuff is pretty common sense. Um, it's just a matter of, ticking off the discipline when you need to, and then being accepting 
when it doesn't work. And I want to be clear, it's not going to work. And you might have a one night a week, it's not going to work. You might have two nights a week, it's not going to work. Because let's say you have a new baby, right? Or a situation that's come up. That's okay. It's not going to be forever. I swear to you. I promise you, promise you, promise you, you will get some sleep someday. Well, this has just been such a wealth of information, particularly for my perimenopausal women. By and yeah. large, that is the biggest complaint that I hear. How do I help with sleep? How do I help with sleep? So I think that there's been some really great actionable items. The three by 15, I really, I know we talked about this at the top of the hour, but I'll say that br- like, you know, f- breathing for 15 minutes, 15 ounces of water, 15 minutes of sunlight. I almost feel like even if that's the way you bookend the day, right? If yeah. you think about maybe not right at the end of the day, but if you're doing that throughout the day, you start mm-hmm. the day like that and you take little snacks, yeah. we'll say like little sleep snacks through the day f- with that three mm-hmm. by 15 um, paradigm, I think that's going to be so helpful. And then of course, all the other things we were talking about, alcohol, moderation, hydration, all the, all the things. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been really, really a treat to talk to you again and um, let people know where they can find you, um, where they might interact with you if you're in practice, doing any studies, books, your website, all the places. How can people find you? Sure. So I'm very easy to find. Um, I have a website called thesleepdoctor.com. And I have that moniker on all the social properties. So I'm the sleep doctor on Facebook. I'm the sleep doctor on Twitter. I'm the sleep doctor on TikTok. Um, So you can find me there. Um, Also, if you join all the different ones, we put out different pieces of information at different places. So what's on Twitter isn't necessarily what's on Facebook and something different might be on TikTok. So it just kind of depends upon what you're looking for. Um, But the website's got a ton of information. Um, And so especially around menopause or having trouble sleeping. Um, Also, we do a lot of mattress reviews. So I know we didn't get a chance to talk about that, but you know, your bed is your equipment, right? And and if you're an athlete, you know that you you can't run a marathon in flip-flops, but you can if you got good running shoes on, right? So equipment matters. I would argue sleep is the same way. So we've done about maybe over a hundred different mattress reviews over at thesleepdoctor.com. So if people are in the market for a bed, I've, I've actually kind of done a lot of the homework for you. So check it out. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Sweet dreams. All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 